Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. I invite you this morning to turn to Daniel chapter 2. And I'll give you just a little bit of time to, to turn there or to get your phone out and go to your U version, assuming that when you get your phone out, you're actually going to the Bible when you do it. If not, we all stand in judgment on you this morning. I want to give you a little bit of background uh, to Daniel. I gave it a little bit last week, but I'm going to give you a quick hit so that if you weren't here, you get caught up to speed. Uh, God's people had become idolatrous. You see a little bit of a theme of that in the Old Testament, don't you? Just a little bit of problem with worshiping all the things that we shouldn't be worshiping. There's this cycle. If you look at Old Testament scholars, they would say, you see this theme in the life of God's people where, you know, they start to they become idolatrous and God warns them and says, you know, repent, literally go another way. This isn't it. This isn't going to work. This isn't going to give you what you think it's going to give you. And they're like, nah. And so God says, well, repent or there's going to be judgment. And they're like, oh, I don't think you would do something like that. And then there's judgment. Strangely, God is a person of his word. So then there's judgment. And then the people are like, whoa, we don't, we don't like this. It's like, now I've got your attention. And then you see the people repent. But if you read kind of just through the Old Testament, you see them doing this like over and over again. That's why it looks like a cycle. And the more that I look at it, I'm like, you know, I'm kind of like that myself. Is that fair? I mean, they have become, now is that fair about me? And y'all are like, yeah, that is fair. (laughs) It's fair about you too. They become idolatrous. And so God gives a warning He says, you know, you need to repent or you're actually going to go into exile. I'm literally going to hand you over. I'm going to hand my own people over. And they choose not to. Now, they had been given this warning for over 400 years. And every time I think that, I go, God is like really patient with us, isn't he? God is really patient. And I'm thankful for his his patience, but there is an end. And so what he does is he sends them into exile. This is in 605 BC under a guy named Nebuchadnezzar, who was basically the ruler of Babylon. Now, if you think about Daniel and his friends, uh, after you see all of these people being literally pulled from their homes, taken to a foreign land, they're being told, you have to learn our language. You have to learn our culture. You have to worship the gods we worship. You're not gonna be worshiping who you worship. Those days are over. They're done. And then you have Daniel and his friends. It's not just that. What is said of Daniel is very likely he was made a eunuch, which means that he was probably castrated. There's a lot going on here. Wouldn't you agree with me? And to point, he's probably about 15 years old when this is all going down. So at 15, removed from your home, your most sacred place has been defiled. All of your people, people watching family and friends getting killed in front of you, you've been castrated very likely, and you're 15, which means you also have raging hormones. It's just, it's not the best of times. Is that fair? All that is happening. In the Old Testament, because they're taken to a place called Babylon, um, this is modern day Iraq. You gotta drop about 59 miles south of Baghdad and you would run into the place that we're talking about. In the Old Testament, Babylon is a place, but in the New Testament, Babylon represents a spirit. They represent a spirit. Peter described Rome as Babylon. You see Babylon mentioned even in Revelation. And I love this part because there's this promise that eventually the spirit of Babylon gets crushed. It gets crushed. 
Uh, you see this in Revelation 18, 1 and 2. It says, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. This angel had great power. The angel's glory made the earth bright. The angel shouted with a powerful voice. She is destroyed. The great city of Babylon is destroyed. She has become a home for demons. By the way, that's not good. <laughs> not good. That city has become a place for every unclean spirit to live. Here's the way that they do it. So if in the Old Testament, you have Babylon as a place and the New Testament it represents a spirit. How do they do it? And the answer is, is you find people trying to gain the key positions of leadership, places of prominence and influence so that they can then more or less make things over into the way that they want it to be. This is the spirit of Babylon. They go into government because government has the ability to make cha the changes that they want. They try to infiltrate the education system because then you can have the impact on children that you want. In other words, you can indoctrinate. We know that this was happening then because Nebuchadnezzar flat did it. He pulls Daniel and his friends out. And what does he do? You're going to go study under my people. You're going to learn our ways, our culture, our values, our beliefs, and you're going to accept them. Everything around them, they're surrounded by this. Everything around them is that. But even though the world looked like that for them, it strikes me that that's a perfect time for a Daniel to stand up. What do you think? It's a perfect time for a Daniel to stand up. So there are several thoughts here, because I mean, that's all well and good. The question, part of the question for the book of Daniel is how do you live while you're in exile? How do you live while you're in exile? After all, Daniel's about, the book of Daniel is about how to wisely, live wisely in a place where God is not respected where God's values are not accepted, in a culture where everybody around you lives differently than you, and they even see you as odd. They also see you as an enemy of their way of life. And so there's this natural static that's there. There are a few ways that Christians have responded to this. I'm gonna give you three. Reinhold Niebuhr, some years ago, a lot of years ago, wrote a work called Christ and Culture. And these aren't his words, these are my words, but it's what you kind of find Christians doing. How do I live? when I'm basically a foreigner in a world. Here's one way that we do it, was we try to syncretize our faith. Now that's a strange word to some of you, but here's basically what it means. I'm gonna try to hold to my Christian faith all the while accepting everybody else's faith in with it. That's basically syncretizing. I'm just gonna blend it in there. It's like a gumbo, right? You throw the chicken in and the andouille in, and then you go, don't we still have some squirrel left over? And you go, yeah, we're gonna throw that in. It's like, I'm just gonna throw everything in, and sure, why not? Years ago, I used to go, for, for some years, I mean, I used to go to Haiti. And uh, it was before my first trip, I just remember hearing this. You know, Haiti is 80% Catholic and it's 100% voodoo. And it sounds like a joke, doesn't it? Until you go to Haiti. And then you realize, no, that's real. That's the perfect picture of what syncretism looks like. We're gonna try to hold on to Christianity and we're gonna blend some witchcraft in with it. Except here's the thing, you can't. You can't. If, if I were to try to make the best pan of brownies, and I wouldn't, because <laughs> I'm not a baker, I'm a cook. There's a big difference. But if I were trying to bake the best pan of brownies, I have the very best ingredients mixed in. And then I just threw a splash of arsenic in with it. How many of you would eat that? Just a splash. It's not a lot. Just a, just a dusting over the top. I don't think anybody would say, yeah, I think I want to put that into my body. But syncretism says, yeah, do that with your faith. It won't work. 
Because what happens is, is it ends up eating away what you really believe. But some Christians have gone that way. Daniel and the gang, they could have tried that. They could have said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to try to keep worshiping God, but we'll welcome in the Babylonian gods too. I mean, you know, that way everybody's happy. It just wasn't what they did. Syncretism, not the way to go. Here's another option. You can separate yourself. You can separate yourself from the world. And by that, I don't mean in the sense of just what you value. If you're a follower of Christ, you're already separate. You're valuing the things that he values. You're already separate. That's fine. I mean, literally to physically separate yourself. Where everything that you have in your life, you're now a part of a hermetically sealed bubble of people that believe what you believe and practice what you believe. And you're having literally no impact in the world whatsoever. You're just safe because that's what you value the most. You don't necessarily value impact. You just value, I don't want to be a part of this world. And so I'm going to literally physically separate myself, my family and everybody from the world. And I'm gonna make this, own, this little world that's my world. And I'm gonna have nothing to do with everything out there. That's a possibility. It just isn't a biblical one. It's not a biblical one. We are in the world. We're not of the world. That's the biblical one. That's why we shine. That's why we shine. We don't run. We don't rejoice. Jeremiah was a prophet that was speaking, leading up to the fall of Jerusalem and the exile that you see in the book of Daniel. And look at what he says. This is before any of this shakes out. In Jeremiah 29, four through seven, he says, this is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel says to all the exiles. Build houses. This is in Babylon. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, have sons and daughters, multiply there. Do not decrease, seek the well-being of the city to which I have deported you. Pray to the Lord on its behalf for when it thrives, you will thrive. That's the way, that's the way. Or as Daniel 12 says, you burn like a star. You just shine in the darkness. Maybe this is it. Maybe this is what God wants from us. And so with all that background, this is what helps us understand part of what's going on in Daniel 2. So let's read it. About to be dreaming dreams, people. How many of you have ever had a dream that really upset you? You woke up and you're like, what is that? Nebuchadnezzar is about to have one of those. It's not gonna be fun. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. Notice, did you notice that's plural? He had dreams that troubled him and sleep deserted him. Here's kind of what I think's going on. What I think going, is going on is, I don't think he's having this like once. I think God keeps coming back to him and just kind of slapping him upside the head with this dream. And then he goes to bed and it's like, and he slaps him upside the head with it. And sleep as a result is not happening. Now, for those of you that have ever gone without sleep, you know how you feel when you're without that. You tend to get a little bit cranky, right? You get just a little bit cranky. Well, Nebuchadnezzar is starting to get cranky. Enough so that he goes, I want to understand what this dream is about. I mean, enough of it. So the king gave orders to summon the magicians, the mediums, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans, which is basically another word for Babylonians, to tell the king his dreams. When they came and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream and I'm anxious to understand it. Oh yeah, I bet. And the Chaldeans spoke to the king, and this, all, all this is happening in Aramaic because they're in Babylon. May the king live forever. That's, by the way, probably how I would start talking to the king too. Let's curry a little favor here on the front. May you live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will give the interpretation. And the king replies to the Chaldeans, my word is final. 
If you don't tell me the dream and its interpretation, you'll be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made a garbage dump. Man, I mean, I'm thinking about this because here's what he's doing to them. One, he's not telling them what the dream is. Did you catch that? He expects them just to know, he's expecting them to know what happened in his head. Do you know anybody like that? <laughs> I was about to make a joke, but I'm reeling it back in. We're not mind readers, people. He actually wants them to be mind readers. And he says, and if you get the dream and its interpretation wrong, I'm gonna kill you and I'll burn your house down. This guy's intense. However, he says, but if you make the dream and its interpretation known to me, you'll receive gifts, a reward, great honor from me. So make the dream and its interpretation known to me. You see, he's bothered. So he goes and he gets Sigmund Freud and he says a little help here. Now, here's the thing. They're, they're wise men. Did you catch the wise men that are mentioned here? They actually had a book. It's a book of dreams. I'm not gonna read from it for you this morning, but they had it. And so what their expectation was, was that he was gonna work the way that everybody else worked. They would come up and they would say, I've had this dream. And in this dream, there's water flowing. And can you tell me what that means? And then they would go into the, their book of dreams and, and they'd be like, water. This is what it means for you. Nebuchadnezzar didn't give them that option. He's like, no, and I'm not gonna tell you. You're going to tell me what I've been dreaming. So they're troubled. The other thing is, is it's evident that he sends this guy named Arioch as one of his commanders. He sends him out to find all of these people, not just in the court, but outside of the court, because he's not giving up on finding out what the dream actually means. So he's not just saying, I got a handful of people here that if you get it wrong, I'm gonna kill you. Here's what he's saying. I'm gonna kill all of you. All of you are gonna die. So Arioch, bless his heart, is given this assignment to go out to find the people that can possibly interpret the dream. And if they get it wrong, he gets to be the executioner. Don't you love his job? Who would wanna be this guy? Probably not even Arioch. So he finds Daniel and he says, the king is looking for an interpretation of his dream and kind of finding out some of the details of what he's looking for, like not gonna tell you what it is. You just have to know. Daniel says in chapter two, verse 14, he goes, well, that's kind of tough. Would you give me a little bit of time? And Arioch says, I'll give you that. So here's what Daniel does. He goes back, he finds his three friends that have all been pulled out and conscripted into the service of Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, there's been this challenge that's been put before us. He says this, guys, we need to pray. We need to pray. Now, I don't know what you're going through right now. I don't have a clue. I can imagine with this number of people here and those that are on the live stream, there are probably a lot of real life things going on in here. Genuine financial struggles, I imagine that walked through the door this morning. Marriage struggles, I imagine that walked through the door this morning. Some of you, I think, are trying to figure out how to handle your children. That probably walked through the door this morning. Some of you are dealing with grief that all walked through the door this morning. Maybe you've been conscripted into service by a Babylonian king and you walked in this morning. I'm just kidding, you, that didn't happen today, but I'm just building on the list here. A lot of things have walked in. We need to follow their example. They didn't bat an eye, so we need to talk to God. We need to talk to God. You know what? So do we, so do we. 
And so he did, and he prays. He says, Lord, there's a, there's a mystery that needs to be revealed. Would you tell me what it is and how to understand it? And God reveals. L look at verse 19. The mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision at night, and Daniel praised the God of heavens. And listen to how he praises him. He declares this. May the name of God be praised forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. He changes the times and seasons, and man, I am so thankful he's changed the seasons lately. Golly, I mean, we were like chicken fried all summer, weren't we? He changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and he establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. Which is basically a way of saying there's darkness, but he will, he will reveal it. I offer thanks and praise to you, God of my ancestors, because you've given me wisdom and power. And now you've let, let me know what was asked of you, for you've let us know the king's mystery. And so with that, Daniel says, it's time to go see the king. Let's go. Now, how many of you might be a little bit afraid before you go see this king? I mean, after all, he's already put a hit job out on all the people that could possibly interpret the dream, right? Hey, Arioch, if they're gonna get this wrong, we're gonna kill literally everybody. Okay, so now you're the guy that's gonna come in and deliver a message and heads up, it's not going to be a fun one for Nebuchadnezzar. But he says, it's time. And so here's what we see in verse 26, let's read it. So the king says to Daniel, who, by the way, his Babylonian name was Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me the dream that I had and its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king, no wise man, medium, magician or diviner is able to make known to the king the mystery that he asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. But there is a God. And he tells him things about the future, including his. Now you gotta remember, Nebuchadnezzar has never told him what his dream was, but this is basically the dream. Let me give you an account. The dream figures has this huge, glorious statue of a man. Its head was made of pure gold, its chest of arms and silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs were made of iron, its feet were partly of iron and partly of baked clay. Now that sounds like an odd mix, doesn't it? All these metals, let's throw a little clay in there. Then it describes it this way in Daniel 2.34, a rock that was not by human hands would hit the foot of the statue and the whole image became, it says, like a chaff on the threshing floor, while the rock became a huge mountain and it fills up the whole earth. This vision, by the way, gives us, this is where we get, have you ever heard feet of clay? Have you ever heard of that before? This is from Daniel chapter two. And in case you've ever wondered where that figure of speech comes from and what it actually means, it means this. It means that there's a weakness or a flaw here. That's what feet of clay are. Did you catch it? You have gold and silver. You have, you have the most expensive stuff. You have iron, which is strong. You have wealth and you have strength, but you have clay. There's a flaw here and it's gonna be exposed. Well, that's the dream. Now for the interpretation. Are you ready for what Daniel said? So I'm gonna tell you what this means. Daniel's interpretation given by God explains the statue represents a series of kingdoms, man-made kingdoms. Each one, some scholars would say, maybe each one is less glorious than before because you have it going from gold to silver to bronze. That seems to be like lessening in value. Does that make some sense? Some would say, maybe it's something like that. 
Daniel identifies Nebuchadnezzar as the head of gold. And he states that God gave, gave him his power. He says that in Daniel chapter two, verse 37 and 38. You just think that you got that. You are in the position that you're in because God put you there. Go think about that for a little bit. Babylon, historians have talked about Babylon. It was one of the world's first superpowers. It was, it was mightier than anything else that the world had ever seen at that time. It was even impressive by today's standards. Nebuchadnezzar, the guy that, that Daniel is talking to, he built a wall around Babylon. I guess they believed in walls. They built a wall around Babylon. It stretched for more than 56 miles. And in some places it was more than 80 feet wide and 300 feet high. That my friends is impressive. Wouldn't you agree? This is what surrounds this guy. Uh, Herodotus, the historian, talked about Babylon. And when he was writing about his history, he said, when he visited Babylon, he said that he had never in his life seen as much abundance of gold as he had when he went into Babylon. It was on the buildings, gold was on the signs. Nebuchadnezzar's throne was made of gold. That's impressive. Maybe as Daniel was looking and seeing, God was seeing what would be represented in each of the, in each of the empires. Gold represents them. The arms and chest of silver represents two cultures, Medo, and Persia. I know you're writing that down, but these people actually show up in Daniel chapter five because they're the ones that are going to take down Nebuchadnezzar. You're coming down and these are the people that are going to do it. See, did you notice that there are two body parts, the chest and the arms? That represents two kingdoms, Medo and Persia. And what they did is uh, the kingdom of uh, Medea, they came from the north and the Persians, they came from the east. They united and they threw down Babylon in 539 B.C., that's probably the second empire that's being talked about. Here's the third empire. The belly and thighs of bronze probably represents the Greeks. The Greeks. Most scholars actually would agree to that. This is a superpower. They knocked down Medo-Persia in 222 BC. This was led by a guy named Alexander the Great. How many of you have ever heard of him? His teacher was Aristotle. Alexander's armies, by the way, they pioneered the use of bronze. So here you have well before Alexander the Great ever shows up, an empire that's represented by bronze and they're the ones that pioneered the use of bronze. They used bronze in their shields, they used bronze in their swords, which might explain why bronze is what became the symbolic of all of their dynasty in Greece. But Greece only stood for so long because there was a fourth empire. Most would actually think that it was Rome, a fourth kingdom. Daniel 2.40 says that it would crush all of the other ones. And I got to admit, the Romans were pretty impressive if you've ever studied any history. They're represented by iron. But why would they be represented by iron? And I'm glad you asked. And the answer is not because it's more valuable than gold, but because it was considered the strongest of all the metals. Strength, strength. This was supposed to be a prophecy of something about Rome's strength. And sure enough, they took military strength to a whole new level. I want you to think about this. Think about this for a second. Babylon's rule lasted 70 years and then they were taken down. Medo-Persia, they ruled for 200 years and then they were taken down. The Greeks, they ruled for about 200 years and then they were taken down. But the Roman Empire, they're impressive. They lasted for more than 500 years in the West and more than 1,500 years in the East. That's impressive. But guess what? They came down. They came down. They lasted longer than the others, but they came down. 
Did you notice in this, it talked about feet of mixed clay and iron. During this time, there will be a rock and the rock is going to crush them. This is a prediction that you see in Daniel 2:44 that God will set up a kingdom that is never going to be destroyed. It's coming. It's coming. I, I was actually, I was actually, re, you know, scientists are actually on this search for immortality. Did you know that? And they actually think that there is something in the brain that can sustain you for like indefinite periods of time. It's just kind of, they have to figure out how it works. So I was thinking about that. I was like, well, on the one hand, it makes some sense out of some things like, how could somebody live like 969 years? All of a sudden, that doesn't seem too crazy. That was Methuselah, by the way, right? Or Adam was 939. All of a sudden, that doesn't sound too crazy. But it got me thinking, would I want to live a thousand years with the state of the world being what it is? Boy, now that is a different question. And I'm gonna go with a no. Hard pass. I don't think so. See, there's more to this talk than just saying, I just want to live forever. I want to live different. I want this place different. I don't want it looking like this. Do you? Uh, Just with all the mess going on in the last several weeks and somebody pops out on social media, not even a, a believer in God going, it's almost like it's apocalyptic out there right now. And I was like, well, (laughs) I mean, it is a mess. We can all agree to that. I don't want to live longer. I want the world to be different. There is a kingdom that is coming. There is a kingdom that is coming. And Daniel was talking about it. Look, Look at verse 34. As you were watching, Daniel says this to Nebuchadnezzar. A stone broke off without a hand touching it. Stone broke off. Here's the the part about no hand touching it. Men didn't do this. You didn't build this. This was a God thing. And it struck the statue on its feet and it crushed them. Then the iron, the fired clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, they were shattered and they became like a chaff from the summer threshing floors. Just so you know, back then, maybe they would get like wheat. Let's just go with wheat for a second. And they would pull the wheat in whole. They would put it in between two things and they would shake it violently. And after they shook it, what you would see is the chaff or the part that's not like good for for food. You would see it literally just kind of blowing off like a dust. And then the fruit from the wheat is what would remain from the shaking. That's the picture that you're getting in Daniel. All of these empires for all of their strength and wealth and glory, they were like a chaff. Just blew away. But here's what it says in verse 44. It says, the great God has told the king what will happen in the future. In the days of those kings, the God of the heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. It will crush all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will endure forever. This reminds us of something, and maybe we need to write this down. A man who can conquer anyone or anything is pretty easily conquered by God. A man who can conquer anyone or anything is easily conquered by God. That includes me. That includes you easily conquered by God. Have you noticed that no army has actually come and defeated Nebuchadnezzar yet? Have you caught that, right? I mean, how did God get to him? And the answer was dreams. And he shook him up, dreams. God can get to these people. Maybe God needs to get to these people, but he got to him and he was shook in a dream. 
I want you to think about this, though, because I think that there's something else that the text wants to reveal. There was this part when you go back with Daniel, and there was this point that was made by all of the magicians and all of the wise men when Nebuchadnezzar came to them and he said, I've had this dream, I want you to tell me what the dream is. Did you catch what they said? We can't tell you what the dream is. Uh, That would require God telling us what the dream is and our gods don't dwell among us. They're not here. You're asking us to do something impossible. And here's what Daniel says. There is a God and he reveals mysteries. A mystery is basically something that right now you don't understand, but God will show. Jesus, by the way, was called the mystery of God. Something at one point people couldn't understand, there he is. This is this moment for Daniel. And I want you to think about this. The stone, you remember the stone that was not moved by a human hand that falls. The stone was made without human hands. It comes about with no human agency. We aren't doing it. Did you know that the stones of the temple had to be made without human hands? That was to show that no part of God's salvation would come about by us. We didn't touch it. We didn't make it. It's from him. And so like the stone that wasn't touched by human hands or made with human hands, that's like Jesus. He was born of a virgin, not of us. Second, the rock that you see in this picture. It's the least valuable substance in the whole story. Did you catch that? There's gold, there's silver, all this stuff. And then there's a rock. How many of you, if you were given a list of things that you could pick, you could pick any of this stuff to have, how many of you go, I see your gold and silver, but that rock is pretty fetching. I mean, nobody, you're going with the gold, right? But think about it. It's the least valuable substance in the dream. Granite, granite is much less valuable than gold, silver, or bronze. That's just a fact. And yet this rock came with the power of God. It came with the power of God and it shattered into dust every other expensive metal. This represents something to us, how Jesus would not come with all the shine of the world because he didn't. He didn't. He was poor, never owned a home. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He never raised an army. He didn't surround him. He didn't go and sit on a throne of gold. He came here for us. He came here for us but he came with the power of God. He came with the power of God. Here's the third thing that I want you to see. In this dream, the rock starts small. Did you catch that? He says it starts small. At the time when Jesus ascends, he's lived, he's died, he's risen. He's been working with the guys for 40 days. It's time for his ascension to go to the the throne. There were probably, you you would like to think, that given all the miracles and teaching and everything that Jesus did, that thousands of people were following him at that time. But there weren't, there weren't. You could probably fit the number of people that were actually following him into a room. Started small, but you wait, you wait. Because now when you look at it, Christianity has permeated some of the places that you would think it would never have permeated. Did you know that the number of people that are worshiping Jesus in China underground are outnumbering the people that are worshiping Jesus right now in the West? Would you have thought that? And yet it's true. And the numbers only grow. They only grow. And thank God for that. He moves and he works. And often in places that you least expect it. But he does it. And this was the point. That rock, so though it starts out as something small, it's going to take over the world. 
It's literally gonna change the world. That's the same thing Jesus said about his kingdom in Matthew chapter 13, that his kingdom would start small. It's gonna be like a seed, he said, but it's gonna multiply and it's gonna cover everything. It's good because this world needs to be changed. And so do we. We need to be changed. Here's some final thoughts. I was looking in John this week, John's gospel. In John 3, 17, he says this, God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. There are two parts here, because he says this again in John 12, 47. I didn't come to the world uh, to judge the world, but to save the world. The mission of Jesus wasn't to condemn. The mission of Jesus was to save. That said, here we are looking at the book of Daniel. And it seems like God was making a judgment, wasn't he? And it's because God was. He looked at his own people and he sent them into exile. He's looking at Nebuchadnezzar and he's like, hold on because your time's coming. But there is judgment that is coming. This is kind of the part of, this is kind of the part of our faith that's always difficult to talk about, but it's also really important to talk about. I mean, imagine for a second that you had a person that you really loved and they're standing on a train track and there's a train that is barreling straight for them and you didn't say a word. You didn't say a word. Instead, you said something like this. Nah, they'll be fine. I, I'll throw this out there. You're not really loving the person on the train track. You're just not. God gives a warning to his own people. He says, repent. Why? Because this is the better way. It's the true way. You gotta turn from where you're at. So when you see Jesus in John 3, 17, when it says, I didn't come to judge the world, Scholars will tell you this. In general, the references to Jesus sitting in judgment on the human race, those are references to his second coming. Did you see in Revelation 18 before when it says, I will crush Babylon? Did you see that? In Revelation 19 and Revelation 20, it describes Jesus sitting on the throne in judgment over the nations. He will judge. We have to believe that. But he didn't come here for that. He came here so that you can escape that. So that you can escape that. The verse is about his not coming to judge, about him coming as a baby, born of a virgin, walking this broken earth, suffering, dying on a cross, vindicated in his resurrection. And then he looks at us and he says, who's coming with me? Who's coming with me? There, there is no question that there is a spirit of Babylon alive and well today. Can you agree with me on that? There is also no question that you've given yourself to some kingdom. You have. It's not a matter of have you, you have. The question is which one? Which one? That choice is yours. You can make your choice, you just don't get to choose your consequences with it. Jesus chooses those. And so this morning, I'm gonna give you some time. We wanna follow in Daniel's example. And I'm thankful for his example that in spite of all the pressures of the world, he and his friends say, we're gonna stay with God. You know that phrase that people like to throw around being on the right side of history? You know what I'm talking about? I'm like, have y'all ever read history? <laughs> it's a mess. Why would I wanna be on the side of that? You know whose side I wanna be on? I wanna be on his side. I wanna be on his side. The kingdoms for all of their strength and wealth and self-proclaimed majesty, they will fall, they will blow away like a wind. If I were to take you to Iraq, and if I were to take you into Baghdad, and I were to drop you 59 miles south, we would actually be in Babylon. You know what's there? Basically dust. 
Its former glory is gone. But there is a kingdom that will never go away, and he invites you to come and join it. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.